An honorable profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across this nation. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As you hopefully know by now, An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an amazing organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. I've been a New Dealer for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as a Santa Cruz County Supervisor. I hope you check out some of our past episodes with guests like Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, Tennessee Senator Ramesh Akberi, and Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed. As always, you can find us at newdealleaders.org, wherever podcasts are found. Today, we're continuing our special series on race and justice with Bakari Sellers. Bakari was a New Dealer after being elected to the South Carolina State House at the age of 22. He's now a lawyer and a commentator on CNN. He's just published an amazing memoir, My Vanishing Country, about his family's work in the civil rights movement, his work addressing the pain and poverty in rural America, and his personal struggles with anxiety and health care for his family. It's an important book that couldn't be more relevant to this time. If you purchase the book from bookshopsantacruz.com, my sister's bookstore, we'll donate the profits to the NAACP. Bakari Sellers, welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm so happy to be on this platform and thankful that you're giving me the chance today. First of all, congratulations on a really amazing book, uh, My Vanishing Country. It's a memoir of your experience. It's a look at the issues around race and poverty uh, in our country. I want you to, if you don't mind, to start with the story uh, of your father and the Orangeburg Massacre. I was an American history major in college, and it shocked me that I had never uh, heard about this event. And this is really the story that that drives your interest in politics and your commitment to public service. Yeah, so the Orangeburg Massacre, I mean, it's a, it's a great tragedy in American history, not just because uh, three young men were killed, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and De- Delano Middleton, none of the uh, over the age of 19. Um, not just because uh, 28 others were wounded, not just because my father was one of those shot, and not just because all the officers who shot and killed unarmed students were tried and they were um, found not guilty, but it, it's even more of a tragedy now because of the fact that um, people don't know the story. Um, you know, it's their lives where their lives lost in vain. Um, You had students at South Carolina State, which began on February 6th of 1968, protesting uh, what the history books call the last vestige of discrimination in Little Orangeburg, South Carolina. It was a small whites-only bowling alley. Um, They were beaten on the night of the 6th. On the night of the 8th, they went back down and protested again. Um, Only this time, uh, when the law enforcement came, they got the right idea and they went back to their campus. And the students, they couldn't foresee what would happen that night. They couldn't foresee that uh, 
state troopers would line up along the embankment in front of their beloved campus. They couldn't see that they would close ranks like they did. And for eight seconds, shots were fired into the group of students who killed three um, and wounded many more. And the history history books just failed to acknowledge um, this tragedy. Um, I'm reminded that people know about Kent State, and to a lesser extent, people know about Jackson State, but not many people know about Orangeburg. Yeah, it's uh, it is it, the parallels to Kent State, yet yet it's so much uh, less known. And hopefully, your book um, changes that. And then, um, but it had a profound impact, not only obviously on the lives of those who were killed that day um, and those uh, who had to witness it, but uh, also on your father, uh, which eventually then drove your interest in politics. Can you briefly talk about your father's uh, being falsely accused and then how that, you know, uh, awakened a, uh, an interest in politics with you uh, from that trauma? I mean, that trauma, I tell people, and as you know, um, I state that, that, that that is the most important day of my life. Um, you know, it's not just my father being shot, but it's my father going to prison and the years of anxiety that he had in between that and his trial, you know, they, most people don't know this and most people don't know the story, but most people don't know this. My father was actually charged with five felony counts, looking at a maximum of 75 years in prison. And when he went to trial, the indictment was backdated from February 8th to February 6th. And my father was charged, tried and convicted of rioting, becoming the first and only one man riot in the history of this country. And so it was that pain and anguish um, and um, injustice that touched my family. But it wasn't just, um, you know, that incident. It may, you know, the, the trauma, you can extrapolate it out because my father um, was actually in prison while my mother gave birth to their oldest child or my big sister. And um, then when my father emerged from prison, you know, my father had a felony on his record. So he was a black man in the South with a felony. And so you had all of these interesting, very interesting dynamics that were all caused and stemmed from this injustice. And I even, you know, talk about much of the anxiety that's in my family, et cetera. And, um, you know, that, that moment, I can only imagine the pain for, the families of those three who were killed, but that pain for those who were wounded and my father who was wounded and arrested is still very real. And I, you know, throughout the book, as you know, and in, in me writing this, I, I refer to myself as a child of movement. And there are a lot of us who are experiencing and who go through many of the same, um, much of the same trauma. Um, and it's just, it's, it's something we have to live with. It's, it's a part of the pain of, of the black experience. And I, uh, I want to come back to your very honest uh, depictions of your own anxiety and struggles. Um, but one of the things that's striking about the book is how your father sought um, to expose you very early to the, uh, to the pain and to the history of that moment um, and and it became part you know became part of who you are in a very real way and you know i think many of us i have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old i know you have a uh three kids uh two two younger and one a little bit older and um 
you know, I think we're all struggling with how to talk to our kids and how to engage with our kids when there are so many traumatic events uh, going on around us. What what lesson did you take away from uh, your father's uh, very intentional efforts to to expose you to um, to the realities of life and especially uh, black life in America? I mean, I think, you know, one of the lines that I wrote in the book that stuck out to me the most when you go back and read it and, and you know, when you're writing a book and you get a chance to, to go back and read it, you're like, oh, that was a really, really, really good line there. Um, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me was um, one of the lessons my father taught me in which he said that heroes walk among us. Um, and the reason that stuck out and the reason that's so true is because my father didn't want us to just simply believe that it was Martin Malcolm and Rosa. Uh, my father wanted us to um, understand um, that our, each of us had the capacity to be change agents. Um, he wanted us to study Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. He wanted us to appreciate the contributions of Julian and Marion and Stokely. Um, and he wanted us to have a great value and appreciation for the totality of the black experience, especially those individuals who are on the front line of change. And so, you know, I'm a product of the proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And I'm very grateful that my village is just comprised of so many heroes. And do you have advice for, uh, for people and especially maybe people of color on, uh, who are maybe struggling with how much to talk to their kids, uh, in the wake of George Floyd and these other murders that are happening around our country, um, based on your father's uh, example? Well, you have to be truthful and honest. My father was always truthful and honest. He, al- he also set a level of expectation um, for all of us and an expectation that we could be anything we wanted to be in the world as long as we were change agents. Um, understanding that we had to become a part of something, of something larger than ourselves. All of these things are so important, especially today with the protest movement all around and people trying to find their place. I get this really cool sense of pride, also this innate sadness um, about my my daughter. She's 15, and she protests. Um, she's a Black Lives Matter protester. She goes out there. She makes her sign. She and her girlfriends, they call themselves the Black Queens, and they go out, and, you know, the, the pride that you feel is, like, in your chest is deep, but you also feel this real sadness that your daughter has to go out and reaffirm her Blackness and that her life's her life matters. Um, sometimes you wish she could just be like Baron Trump's or like Donald Trump's son, Baron, and you're just able to be 15 or be a teenager and not have to carry that burden. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that the answer to the question, because I, I re, I'm not someone who gives a lot of parenting advice because I'm still struggling with 17 month old twins and a 15 year old daughter. Um, but I, I would advise people um, to just live in their truth. Um, and people, you know, these conversations that we're having now are, are very challenging and very difficult. And white folks tend to ask me often about the conversation that black folk got to have with their kids. You know, we have, uh, you know, we have to have questions about interactions with law enforcement and interactions with the Amy Coopers of the world that white folks simply don't have to have with their kids. And while that's an intriguing conversation to figure out what I'm teaching my kids, I'm more, I'm more intrigued about what are you teaching your children? How are you teaching them to 
give my, my, my son and daughters the benefit of their humanity? How are you showing by example? Are you elevating people of color around you in your workplace, in your friend circle? Um, are you empowering them? Are you including them in the decision-making process? Because our young people are watching. And so those are more interesting conversations and the introspection that's needed now. That's a great, I know you're not uh, in the business of giving advice, but that is, but those questions uh, in many ways, I think that's, that's a great advice and a good place to, to start. Um, you said that uh, you talked about uh, your daughter's protesting and the, both the pride and sadness uh, that you feel uh, reading this book. I was struck by there's this interplay between real pride in your father's story and your story. Um, and, but there's also a deep sadness about the state of uh, race relations in this country. And then also the economic uh, deprivation of our rural areas. Um, I guess in writing this book, did you sort of discover any truths um, that that you sort of hadn't worked through before, or and what was this process like of writing, and then and now talking about this book? So, I mean, it was therapeutic or maybe cathartic. You have to have somebody who really knows the intricacies of the difference thing. <laughs> but it was it was it was it was a it was fun. Um, I've you know I've lived in a fishbowl since I was. 21 years old when I first ran for office. And so living in a fishbowl is not, you know, where you, everyone knows absolutely everything. Um, absolutely everything that you do um, through being in elected office and sometimes that pressure and stress. And so I wanted to be honest and I honest for those people who are writing and met some people who are writing their stories. You can't, you can't tell your story in half truths. You have to be, you know, people want realness and authenticity. And that's what I attempted to do. And now talking about this book and the success of this book gives me hope. And I hope this book is extremely successful so that other people like me can tell their stories too. So talking about your story, you were elected to the state legislature uh, at age 22. You rose quickly in the state and made a run uh, for lieutenant governor that was ultimately unsuccessful. One of the things that strikes me is uh, you've 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 been in the system, um, and as your daughter and others march, what do you think they need to know about the system? And then, what do legislators, white and black, progressive and conservative, need to know about the marchers? And because it it feels a little bit like people are talking past each other. Uh, maybe it's an intentional. Uh, effort to not to not hear each other you know um but what what from your experience what's what 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 are your observations well i think the largest observation people have to make is that this isn't just about george floyd i think if you think it's about george floyd or just police brutality you miss the entire mark um this isn't just about george it's just not about brianna and we have to say her name and say her name loudly this isn't just about ahmaud aubrey this is about uh, 401 years of institutionalized and systemic racism and oppression and people are, tr- are tired of these systems. It's been a boiling point. It's about 
you know, whether or not you're a legislator or whether or not you're a state house member or whether or not you are, um, you know, in city government or, or, uh, you know, school board or whatever it may be. It's about talking about the food deserts that are in your particular district. Um, it's about talking about improving the quality of, of public school education. It's about um, the drinking water and the air that people breathe. It's about these systems of oppression that have been um, making this an uneven playing field for people of color, particularly black people, since 1619. And that, that is George Floyd and the inhumanity of that um, killing. I mean, when you watch a murder on tape um, for uh, that long, you know, I, I tell people that it wasn't minute one, but it was minute two through eight that awoke in the consciousness of a nation. Um, it's not hard for you to believe that interactions with law enforcement can go sideways if you see one put their knee in a net for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So what I, what I believe that people have to be able to do is take a step back and look at the entire worldview. And then you, you, you said something that's profound, and I think that it's, prob- it's the problem that we're having in this discussion right now is that too many damn people are talking like <laughs> there comes a point where you need to shut up and listen, right? This whole thing is like the, the reason I wrote a book is so that people can understand the trauma of being black in this country. The reason we're going through this moment is because people need to like, listen. And, you know, for those elected officials or people who want to go into politics, who may listen, who may listen to this podcast, you know, there's a certain element of just being quiet, right? And attempting to learn, read a book, listen to other people's stories, write your story so other people can learn from it. But too many people are talking right now, which is why the clutter is becoming unbearable. That, that was my next question, which is, you're not only, uh, you not only were a participant in our political system, but now you're a keen observer of it uh, in your role at CNN. Do you think the incentives and our the, the civic life of this country is set up for us to listen and start to work towards solutions. It seems like all the incentives and it's sort of embodied by our president are, uh, are aligned to go the other way, right? To push division and to push shouting from your perch at CNN over our political system. Are we, are we ready for, to, to grapple with these, this, uh, 400 years of oppression. So, I mean, you add that again, you, you're channeling your inner Chris Cuomo. That was a really good question. That was loaded, but good. So is society suited to have this discussion? I'm boiling down your question or at least answering the one I think. You, so I think we are, will we have this discussion in a way that is, valuable and have the necessary depth i'm not sure and the main reason is because we become so addicted to i think the i think the word is the mcdonaldization where you want people where people want things quickly and they want it right now did i make that word up or if it, have you ever heard of that if if i just made it up we're gonna we're gonna roll with it i appreciate yeah it. no i've and uh, i've also eaten enough mcdonald's to know exactly what you're talking about yeah and you know, with social media and cable news and people retreating to their own silos where, uh, you know, you have these silos where you only go out and search for, um, you only go out and search for people that reinforce your own views, right? Um, and that's a problem. 
So I think that, and you know, if somebody's watching Tucker, or 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 uh, or uh, I forget the morning show they have over there every single day. I had a unique experience because I was able to be a fellow at the University of Chicago, and I challenged my fellows um, for one week. Oh, Fox and Friends, one week. Watch Fox and Friends. The next week. Entire week, watch Morning Joe. And then the third week, watch New Day. And while you're watching all three of these, at the end, come back and you will have three distinct views, or maybe two and a half distinct views of what reality is. And so, you know, I just think that it's very difficult when you have these vacuums of truth. Um, you know, I, I'm a big proponent and fan of, of New Day and a big big fan and proponent of Morning Joe. I have no idea what they're doing on Fox and Friends. Uh, but but you understand that it's hard to have these conversations because people distort reality. People just can't tell the truth sometimes. Yeah, and I guess two things. One is, if you're advising the vice president right now, how does how does how does Joe Biden sort of create space in this media environment for this conversation? And then let's with fingers crossed, knock on wood, say he's elected. Um, what do you, what does he do in the first hundred days or the first year of his presidency to try to, to have this conversation in this country that's so long overdue? Well, I actually think that the conversation about race is something that a black president couldn't necessarily have, but I am, it's, I think that Joe Biden is uniquely positioned because of serving with Barack for eight years to have it and working with a black man for eight years and seeing him raise black daughters for eight years. I think he learned a lot. Um, I think he learned a lot from um, Michelle and Barack and Sasha and Malia, undoubtedly. Um, And so, he has to create this space. And, you know, I don't even think it's a choice of his, to be completely honest with you. I think this moment is here now. And he, he will either create the space or be consumed by it. And even more importantly, there are 4 million people who voted in 2012 who didn't vote in 2016. Of those 4 million, um, 1.3 are black. And they're not just going, you know how many voters I've had who say that they're sick and tired of electoral politics, that, you know, they feel as if both parties have failed them. He has to speak to that um, or else he risks allowing Donald Trump to be president of the United States again. And speaking of, I want to come back to that in a second, but speaking of the idea that electoral politics has failed, um, you know, there's a reading of your book where here you are. You're smart and you're committed to doing good by your community, by your state, but you're watching a failure of politics over and over and over again that, you know, giving you insight into a failed healthcare system uh, with the birth of your daughter. How do you keep hope for those, for those 4 million people who opted out and 1.4 of them who are African-American and they've given up hope on electoral politics? What do you say to pull them back into the system and maybe pull yourself back into that system. Well, you know, one of the things that's kind of cool about black folks is that we've lost a lot in this country and we're stripped of everything when we got here, but we always maintain hope and faith. 
and I was talking to uh, Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey recently, and he was telling me about his father and mother when they were crying on the night of April fourth of sixty eight when King died, and how they just said that uh, I think his quote was, "God damn, these white folk don't want us to have nothing." Um, when King was killed. Um, but yet, and still, there was a level of perseverance and hope. Um, and I think what, you, what you're seeing now is people who, especially black folk in this country, are pushing for this country to be even that much more of a perfect union and are, are hoping that the values of this country can one day be realized for us all. Um, so there's an opportunity and that's what I think the message is. There is an opportunity to message to these voters. The question is, will we, um, the question is, will Joe Biden go into those crevices? Um, will Joe Biden have the proper, cause you know, to be completely honest, sometimes Joe ain't even the right messenger, but, uh, you know, sometimes you can have a message and not be the right messenger. Who are we going to send into these communities to, talk to voters to because I tell people often that many times the choice isn't just Donald Trump or Joe Biden, the Trump, the, the choice for a lot of voters is Joe Biden or the couch. And sometimes the couch wins. And so we have to be very proactive in our messaging. Who do you think are messengers that we need to send out there? And keeping in mind, as, as you pointed out in your book, uh, that it's not just about, big presidential elections, it's about midterm elections, it's about state and local elections. Um, who who are the messengers that you think might resonate who aren't, who haven't been called upon yet, but may still, uh, may still be called upon? Sometimes, uh, you know, like the perfect example, I mean, the perfect example of this, and I'm not, I'm not a biblical scholar, but, uh, you know, there's a scripture that talks about him sometimes choosing um, the least of us, you know, who would have ever guessed two months ago that George Floyd would be a hero, like legitimately a, a great American hero. And the, the, the weird part about this is you do know that like many times folk don't get a chance to choose who our heroes are. Um, and so I think that there are people, in fact, I know that there are people like Charlemagne the God, like uh, Puff, like influencers who normally, Bun B, for example, Scarface, influencers who normally are, are not, they don't come to the front of mind when we're talking about these issues, but they have a core audience, can articulate these issues and have a certain level of respect. And I think that's so important um, when you're talking about going into and meeting, going out and meeting people where they are. I mean, I'm going to be on the road too, as much as the Rona allows me to be, um, uh, you know, trying to, uh, give what I believe to be the future of this country and push Joe Biden to get there. Um, and also work like hell to make sure he's elected. Now we spent a lot of time talking about, uh, our side of the aisle. Um, but, uh, I'm, and I, I don't know why I was surprised, but when I read the book, I was surprised, uh, at your, you know, um, uh, relationships with Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Mick Mulvaney in South Carolina, in part because you needed to have those relationships to get things done 
for the people that had elected to represent you, but you've continued those relationships. What's the conversation like going forward with those on the other side of this political divide? Oh, it's very, very, very challenging. It's do better. It's you are better than this. And these people that we're talking to, Tim, um, Nikki, uh, definitely Nikki, to a lesser extent, Mick, they've all, they've all seen the pain and hurt of, you know, race violence in South Carolina. Um, with our, you know, our, our friend Clemente Pinckney, they've all done the work and they need to, they need to step up. And a lot of times, you know, King said it best. We won't remember the, the words of our enemies, but we'll remember the silence of our friends. Um, and at what point, at what point are they going to step up and say enough is enough? And I think that's the question we have for them. Ed, do you think, do you think that point exists, whether for them as individuals, but in this in this political environment we are we're living in? I mean, a question, do they want to be great or not? I mean, do they want to be remembered for their character or not? And so, this isn't a both sides issue. This is somebody who is a racist in the White House, and you have to speak out against that. Now, what's uh, what was what's was I think educational was that uh, despite your your belief, you know, uh, of absolute truth that we have a racist in the White House, somebody's bringing out the worst elements of our country, is you've still maintained a personal relationship uh, with these folks on the other side of the aisle um, and tried to tried to continue that conversation. Can you talk about a little bit what that's like? I mean, I think so many people are just ready to to go to their side and, you know, uh, start firing, you know, why, why maintain the personal relationship in a, in an environment where the damage being done is so, so great. Because they're friends. And I think that, um, you know, I think you have to meet people where, where they are and, you know, I know these people. So this isn't, this isn't just, um, you know, this isn't just, uh, you know, people I see on TV or characters in a, in a drama. These are people I know their family. I know how good they are, how much, what type of mothers they are, parents they are. And I, but I also know what type of people they are. And as a friend, you know, this is me encouraging them to be better and to stand up, uh, especially during these times. It's a, it's an important, important task that, uh, it's uh, it's gonna. I think it's gonna. You know that that uh, that's asking a lot. In some ways, that's uh, asking more than, um, you know, holding a sign uh, at a protest because you're you have to. It's engaging with people, uh, and sort of working through those. Now, I mean, that's the work for us to do. That is what we have to do. I mean, it's having difficult conversations in tough spaces and engaging with people. That's literally what we have to do. So now I have to ask, you've been willing to uh, continue to engage in politics. What's your future and how do you, how do you plan on having these conversations uh, in politics going forward? 
So I want to, you know, I, I do want to run for office again. Hopefully I'll be running for the United States Congress in the near future. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know when that's going to be, um, but I can't wait to get back involved. You know, the lessons that I learned when you get out of politics, one of the lessons, um, one of the lessons that I learned is that uh, you're never as important as you thought you were. Um, and so I am, uh, I, I'm happy to be out and taking a deep breath, but I can't wait to get back in. I guess the remarkable thing is having read your book, there's a, an ambivalence about the efficacy of our systems because you've seen them fail so often. They failed your father. They failed uh, Denmark, South Carolina. Um, but I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're willing to, to, to stick with it and, and continue the fight. You know, what, what do you think drives you individually about trying to, to stay in that system? That's a good question. I mean, my father gave up so much. My family gave so much to this journey for justice that I'm not going to quit now. Um, you know, I stand on the shoulders of people who pushed this country to and, and believed in what Lincoln said was the better angels of our nature. And so I'm not going to be the one to break that chain. Um, it's going it's tough though. It really is. Um, but, um, you know, I'm going to keep, um, I'm going to keep fighting. Um, I don't have a, I don't have any other option and I want to create a country where my kids can be free, not just for life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, but for things like love and hope and truth and justice and peace. And that journey is not completed yet. Well, thank you for, for staying on that journey. Thank you for continuing the fight. Thank you for writing a beautiful book in my vanishing country. Uh, anyone out there, I, I recommend that you read it and thank you Bakari Sellers for joining us on an honorable profession. That means a lot. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.